That was begins right now. Well, joining me now to talk about the week that was in politics is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hi, Jess. Hi, there's lots to talk about here, but uh, let's talk about one man who you and I have interviewed many a time. That, of course, is veteran BC politician Mike DeYoung, who uh, this week announced he will leave the legislature after a 30-year career in government and opposition. Uh, DeYoung uh, was first elected as a BC Liberal uh, in the Fraser Valley in a by-election against Grace McCarthy in 1994. Now, Mr. DeYoung says while he is leaving provincial uh, politics, it may not be his last time in politics. There has been Talk that he would run potentially for the Conservative Party of Canada in the next federal election. Take a listen. What's next? Uh, lots of uh, uh, speculation about that, and I'll repeat what I have uh, said to some of you uh, uh, previously. Uh, it is true that I have been approached by the Conservative Party of Canada and uh, many members of the Conservative Party of Canada uh, with a request to uh, uh, run as a candidate in the next uh, federal election for that party. Uh, it's also true that I'm considering that, uh, but uh, I, I want to emphasize this. I haven't made uh, decisions, uh, a final decision, so I'm not withholding that decision. That is Mike DeYoung speaking earlier this week. Keith, uh, what, is, uh, what are the repercussions of this with Mike DeYoung leaving? Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword for the VC United Party. On the one hand, they need to re- uh, renew themselves. Uh, they've got a branding problem, but they also need renewal. They're losing. I think DeYoung is now the ninth sitting member not to seek re-election. So a couple of things. Uh, anyone who's leaving removes the incumbency advantage. So that's going to be tougher for the United to hang on to that seat, particularly if the Conservatives run in uh, Abbotsford West, and they likely will. In fact, I know they will. Um, the um, but it's also it's a neatly bookends for Mike DeYoung's career. So his you mentioned he beat Grace McCarthy in a by-election in 1994. That was a historic win because that allowed the BC Liberal Party to rebuild itself as the so-called free enterprise coalition alternative to the NDP. If Grace McCarthy had won. She was a formidable enough political figure that she could have resurrected the Social Credit Party on her own and made that the continued free enterprise coalition. And the BC Liberals would never, potentially might never have achieved the success they did in forming government in 2001. So he's there as sort of a a major part of the puzzle of building the free enterprise coalition. And then his departure is coming at a time when that free enterprise coalition seems to literally be falling apart as you've got the BC Conservatives and his BC United Party at each other's throats and loggerheads and splitting the vote on that side. So there's, a, as I say, two neat bookends on either side of Deong's provincial political career. Yeah, what I find interesting is that, you know, he got elected in 94 uh, and uh, very much connected. He's, he's a, the son of the, of, a, of the Fraser Valley of Abbotsford. Uh, but that riding has gone through significant changes. I was just looking at some of the numbers. I think it's 52 or 53% visible minority. Huge South Asian population. That is Mike DeYoung's riding, and he's been very close with the South Asian community. But a minute an incumbent like that leaves, uh, I, I'm actually of the belief that it isn't a BC United riding; it's a Mike DeYoung riding. And now that Mike DeYoung yeah. is gone, I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm going to assume, as you said, the Conservatives obviously gunning uh, for that riding. But the NDP's got to be looking at the demographics, going, oh, "Wait a minute, sure. here we can win here." 
Oh, for sure. I mean, they, uh, Pam Alexis won in Abbotsford Mission, first time ever an NDP victory. And you're right, the demographics in the Eastern Valley are changing significantly as young families are pushed out of sort of urban Vancouver into more affordable areas of housing, uh, which puts areas before basically unimaginable wins for the NDP now very much in, in potentially in their win column, places like uh, Abbotsford, Chilliwack. Langley, uh, again, historic breakthroughs in the last election for, the, for that party, and things are just simply improving for them. So, yeah, this seat could very easily become a new Democratic Party seat because, again, they're losing the personal um, appeal and incumbent advantage by losing Mike DeYoung. And that you can start looking at other seats around BC uh, that BC United is seeing their incumbent leave, and with the Conservatives entering a candidate. Seats like uh, Dan Ashton's Penticton seat suddenly comes into view for the NDP. Uh, potentially even a seat like uh, Shoe Swap, uh, even a, a seat to any number of other MLAs who are leaving can easily be seen as potential NDP pickups because of that potential split with the BC Conservative Party. Yeah, a lot can happen, boy. But when you look at uh, when you look at the splits, you kind of think, man, this is the potential for an NDP supermajority. But many months uh, ahead uh, still for a lot of a lot of conversation. One of the issues that's going to be coming up throughout this uh, before the election campaign is, of course, going to be housing. That's one of the reasons many have said that BC United today languishes in opposition. Kevin Falcon was on the show yesterday talking about his uh, housing plan, Keith. He's talking about uh, you know a rent to buy program setting aside 15 percent of units in new bills to put aside for renters who want to buy he talked about scrapping the property transfer tax he's also talked about uh, you know identifying land owned by government uh, and putting aside enough putting putting that aside for 99 year leases i mean it's a pretty interesting housing plan oh i think it was probably bc united's best day policy-wise for a long time i think uh, Falcon laid out a, a very cohesive plan that I think is probably going to appeal to a number of people. Um, and again, it's it's something that they're talking about what they're going to do rather than criticizing the, what the government's doing. And that's always a problem for the opposition is being seen as overly negative all the time, which is the bane of opposition. But this is something they would do. It's a different uh, policy than what the NDP is approaching. But I would not be surprised at all, Jazz, to see the NDP government uh, take and steal a couple of these ideas that Falcon announced and try to make it their own. You know, political history is uh, riven with examples of parties doing just that to each other, taking each other's best ideas and trying to pretend it's their idea. Um, so the rent-to-own scheme uh, in particular is one to keep an eye on because I think that's got some potential merit with the voters. Well, and under BC Builds, the NDP's already talked about uh, uh, providing public lands to build housing. So that overlaps with the the, the, uh, the BC Liberals uh, a plan as well. But uh, do you think this is going to be the number one issue heading into the election is going to be housing and affordability? Uh, Well, I think affordability overall, but it's not necessarily a vote determiner. Uh, determinant. Again, you go back to a series of public opinion polls going back a couple of years where the most important issues on the minds of voters consistently are the same ones. Affordability, cost of living, housing and health care. Then you look at the, the grade the voters are giving the NDP government on those issues. Um, Health care scores a little better than the others, but everything else is 80% negative. Yet it doesn't turn the vote. And this is the challenge BC United has. Um, they bring out a housing policy. People may like it, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote BC United. I think they've got their problems are much more deeply rooted that can't be sort of solved or erased with the announcement of just a single policy. What's interesting this past week, we did see a significant shift by the NDP. For the first time ever, an NDP leader talked about the need to help 
families that were earning close to $200,000. So a recognition that even people in six-figure incomes, because of the price of housing and rents and, and ownership, uh, six-figure income does not guarantee you financial stability. That is a shift from the NDP away from their traditional supporting the low-income family only and now embracing what they call the middle. And that middle is a, a significant high salaries and wages. And that's a shift. And I think you're going to see some of that reflected in next Thursday's budget. Some of those those means-tested programs that sort of expire at the 80,000 level or the mm-hmm. 70,000 level, I think are going to get extended to uh, capture way more people than are currently captured by some of these financial aid packages. And you know, why not? Why not when you have two teachers uh, making that salary collectively? Why shouldn't they get help? Why shouldn't police officers get that help? And yep. I think that's really important. And speaking to the middle class, so I'm all for it. Uh, let's go to Carrie in Surrey. Hi, Carrie. Hi, um, I'm glad you're talking about this. Actually, a group of us, we had this conversation the other day, and Kevin's gone, he's dug himself too deep into a hole for him to climb out of. I'm convinced, I believe, the vast majority of British Columbians and even Canadians sit in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like, if we had Christy Clark's BC Liberals going through right now, she could run away with the next election. But Kevin Falcon has to convince people like myself, to stray away from the NDP. And he started his campaign with his anti-SOGI garbage um, and the anti-carbon pricing, which is hilarious because he was in the part of the party that brought both of those programs in. And he has turned off so many people that there's absolutely no way he he could say anything right now. He's not going to get the votes. And mark my words, the same thing is going to happen to Pierre Polyetha. This all anti-hate, hate, hate, MAGA stuff, people are sick of it. Carrie, thanks for your call. I, I would say that Mr. Falcon has actually been supportive of SOGI, uh, although on, on carbon tax you can probably, uh, not that you're correct, but you could actually debate him on that, and that's fine. Keith, there is an issue, I think, with Mr. Falcon trying to protect the right-wing flank of his party from the Conservatives and not spending as much time as he needs to that centrist, progressive, conservative, federal, liberal center. Yeah, that, that's the pickle he's in, is the conservative part of the province has now gone conservative. Conservative. Uh, the liberal part of the province, traditional was a lot of them have gone NDP, and Falcon's caught in the middle of all this. And he is—he's a—he's a right-wing politician. I mean, he's a right-winger uh, activist in the 1990s. Uh, he's not a centrist as much as, um, although in government he was required to be more centrist under Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark. But the more John Rustad and the Conservatives sort of steal their thunder, the more the BC United Party will likely shift onto BC Conservative turf to try to placate those voters, but they risk losing callers like we just had who favor something more in the middle. So he's in a real quandary. And you're seeing the, the NDP try to um, tack to the middle as well. This government, or the NDP, is nowhere near as left-wing as the NDP government of the 1990s. Uh, it's it's uh, it's two not two different parties, but certainly two different types of government. And I think Falcon sometimes falls into the trap thinking he's fighting the 1990s NDP, and he's not. He's fighting a more centrist party. And when you go tack too far to the right, you lose a heck of a lot of voters. And every election cycle, as you and I both know, uh, millennials and the younger generation play a bigger and bigger role. Not that baby boomers don't vote. I'm just saying the voice of, of a younger generation is now a part of the broader discourse in these elections as well. Uh, let's go to Thomas in Ladner. Hi, Thomas. Hey there. I will be delighted when that, that DeJong isn't going to uh, continue on his political career, career in B.C. If you remember how absolutely inept he was 
in handling the trucker strike. I'm delighted that he's going to go uh, and, and be a conservative. I think he'd make an excellent labor minister in the shadow cabinet of, uh, of uh, Paul Rivera's government. I'll be so glad to see that slaphead gone. See you, Mike. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for your call, Thomas. Uh, well, you know, De Young was finance minister. He was solicitor gen- uh, attorney general. He was the health ministry. He had a lot of senior portfolios. Forestry. And I think he acquitted himself better than not in each of those portfolios. Yeah, exactly. In trucking, uh, in many cases, the federal government, especially with the ports, you know, yeah. they, they, they don't handle that stuff well. It ends up in the provincial government and it turns, up, turns into their problem when it shouldn't in a lot of cases. But uh, that's for another day. Let's go to Wendy in Surrey. Hi, Wendy. Hi. Uh, love your show. First time caller. Hey, welcome aboard. What's on your mind? Yay. Um, the threshold for the uh, middle class, yep. so they say. Uh, and I understand that everybody needs help, but I'm in the bottom theater and I work for the provincial government. Mm. I'm a single parent and every little penny counts. And I my rent is 50% of uh, my check, mm-hmm. and you know, like how if you can't if you're making a hundred thousand a year, I don't understand how come you can't find decent accommodations. Um, I, I I can't. I don't understand how that works. Wendy, I appreciate your call. I mean, Keith, Wendy raises a very good point. I was just reading some uh, real estate reports today. I mean, you know, one bedroom in Vancouver is $3,000, maybe a little bit less in in the suburbs. But the numbers have just gone up so significantly in the last few years with immigration, with a variety of reasons. But it's still a huge challenge for people just in regards to housing and frustration people have. But at the end of the day, if you are going to go after folks with a higher income, I mean, I'm a I'm going to assume the NDP is trying to widen the tent and reach as many potential voters as they possibly can. Yeah, they're not going. They're not going after them in terms of penalizing. They're going. Yeah. They're, they're trying to target them in terms of health because yes. yes, that's where the most voters are. Um, you know, I think the average a few years ago the average wage was like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. Um, but you just apply that to some of the housing costs, if, if, particularly if you're a family, not just a single person. If you've got a couple of kids, you need at least two bedrooms. Um, that's going to cost you. It could cost. You know, does it cost five thousand dollars? Well, that might be your take, the entire take-home pay, even at, a, at close to a six-figure salary. So, I'm looking for some some unique expansion of some aid package programs and rebates and those types of things and tax credits in Thursday's budget. Keith, thank you. All right, great, great weekend.